Thank you, choir. I feel especially blessed that I got to hear all that twice this morning, as your pastors always do, too. Um, <clears throat> Christ is risen. He is risen Hallelujah. It is a joy to be with you on this second Sunday of Eastertide, and I bring greetings from the 66 other churches in this presbytery who join you in glad witness to the resurrection. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. And yet, even with the hallelujah chorus still ringing in our ears, we woke up Monday morning to news of another mass killing with an assault rifle and were reminded of the Good Friday world in which we live. New York Times opinion writer Esau McCauley, who is an associate professor of New Testament at Wheaton College and a theologian in res residence at an African-American, historically African-American Baptist church in Chicago, wrote last week, Easter has never been my favorite church service. I'm much more comfortable on Monday, Thursday, that night that ends with betrayal, abandonment, flight, because I know so much more about that than about Christ's triumph over sin and evil. He is not alone in that, as we are reminded by this week's lectionary reading involving one who we have come to call Doubting Thomas. Hear the word of God from John 20, 19 through 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the religious leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it on my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. In the closing moments of this scene, Thomas kneels before the wounded and risen Christ, finally seeing and touching for his own self the reality of resurrection life. You believe because you have seen, Jesus says to him. And then it is as if Jesus looks up beyond Thomas, beyond the moment, beyond the page, and notices us who throughout all of these years have peered into this scene over Thomas's shoulder. And Jesus delivers his last beatitude. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Happy are those who have not seen and yet believe. How true Jesus' words ring. None of us in all these years since the first generation of believers have seen, can see, quite like they did. Yet we all know people for whom faith, nevertheless, seems to come easily. It is not derailed by scientific fact or by archeological record or by the latest hermeneutical exegesis. It does not unravel when life does. People who keep hoping, keep loving, keep trusting unwaveringly against all odds. Happy are they indeed. But Jesus, that is not how it works for most of us. For most of us, this life of faith could just as easily be called this life of doubt. It's not just our intellectual faculties that reel from time to time, or a lot of the time, with what the Apostle Paul called the foolishness of the gospel. No, it's deeper and more existential than that. It is praying at a bedside only to weep days later at an open grave. It's singing, for Christ the Lord is risen, our joy that hath no end, from a pit of despair that seems to have no bottom. It's rising to a new day, only to have the morning news scream that nothing is new about this day, and in fact, the old stuff got worse. It's the doubt that Jesus does, can, love us, and in some cases, they doubt it because it's the church itself that has said, no, Jesus doesn't quite love you, accept you the way you are. It's doubt that Jesus loves us, forgives us. We look out into this world or maybe into our own hearts and souls with more than its share of sadness, tragedy, hatred, war, grief, sin. And against our wish, we are skeptical that love and peace 
forgiveness, and joy have the last word. We are skeptical of resurrection life. And so it is a happy coincidence. Well, it's actually not a coincidence. The lectionary writers, I think, are very methodical about this. That we are, that on the Sunday after Easter, our attention is drawn to Thomas, the patron saint of skeptics. And this morning, I invite us to reconsider this brother in the faith as mentor, friend, and guide. To learn from Thomas, the doubter, the road to faith. It has always struck me a little odd that Thomas was the one who got designated as the doubter when in fact the story of that first Easter is a story after story about doubt and wonder and puzzlement and general confusion as you heard last Sunday from the Markin text that, um, that was preached on last Sunday. There are disciples running this way and that, whispering unbelievable news and not believing it. It is little wonder that someone has described Easter as the day of our most joyous certainty and our deepest doubt. Luke even tells us that when the women brought the news of the empty tomb and the angel with the message that Jesus was alive, the disciples dismissed it as idle chat and did not believe them. It is only after the risen Christ appears to them behind locked doors where they are hiding out that the disciples experience and so believe the incredible news that Jesus was alive. It was not until they saw him that they came to believe the incredible news that, that Jesus was alive. Thomas was certainly not alone in that. But Thomas wasn't with them that day. We don't know why he wasn't there, and the text will not satisfy our curiosity. He wasn't there. And the others find him and tell them that Jesus, alive, appeared to them. Thomas is having none of it. For Thomas, a hope like that, a truth that unlikely had to be authenticated in his own experience. Three, three, three things I find intriguing here. First are the conditions Thomas gives for believing this outrageous story. Unless I see the nail in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails on his side, I will not believe. The reality of Jesus' tortuous death is something Thomas did see, does believe, in the same way that we see and believe the pain and anguish and death of our loved ones and of our world. And Thomas will have nothing to do with a cleaned-up Jesus. Only seeing that wrecked flesh redeemed and alive again would be an adequate answer to the brutal ways of the world he knows too well. It wasn't an antiseptic, cleaned up Jesus that Thomas wanted. It was a truth larger than the truth of death that he was holding out for. He had to see the death, the reminder of the death, 
and in its redeemed state before he could believe. And Jesus, turning to Thomas, invites him to look and see. Another thing that intrigues me is that eight days later, Thomas is with the disciples. He doesn't believe their chatter about new life, their alleluias, their hymns of praise, their affirmation of faith, nor does he share their now solid conviction that love indeed is stronger than death. But he's there. Not only did the other disciples not ostracize him from their company because he couldn't get with their story and good on them, but he doesn't distance himself either. He is there not because he believed, but because he didn't, as if he harbored the hope that being in the company of believers, he might come to believe too. And in that hope, he is not disappointed. The third thing that intrigues and encourages me is that Jesus grants to Thomas precisely what it is that he needs in order to believe. Jesus has actually sought him out, and what he offers Thomas is himself, that relationship. And then it is that Thomas, ever the doubter, doubts his own doubt. My Lord and my God. Happy for the, are those who have come to believe without seeing. But Jesus will meet us right where we are. No condemnation, just love to show us himself and renew that relationship. Noted theologian Anne Lamott points out that the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. As scholar and blogger Jean Neely has said, and I will give her the last word here, to all who are uncertain, we are invited to walk the life of faith anyway. We could all be more mindful that many people's paths are more characterized by that space of gloom and bleak waiting than by victory, even within the walls of the church. May we all grow in knowing the love of our unfathomably merciful God in the midst, in the midst of ongoing doubt and struggle. For our sakes, for the sake of the church, and for the sake of extending the grace of Christ, the risen Christ, into the world. May it be so. Amen.